Good morning. I trust it is good for you to be with God's people this morning. Gathering with the church is one of those true joys in the Christian life. Um, and if you know Jesus this morning, then I know you agree with that statement. That you, it may be your first time in a body of believers in a long time, but you're like, man, it's good. I need this. Um, I need to be in a place where my soul is refreshed and encouraged. And maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus and you're just kind of exploring religion. Well, I trust you'd still say it's good this morning. What, what God is doing in this place is good. And so I'm, I'm always grateful to gather with the saints and worship Christ. If you have a Bible or an app or whatever you use, feel free to go to Psalm 119. It's where we're going again. And we're going to just soak this morning in the truths of God's word, if that makes sense. You're just going to let it kind of wash over us, and we're going to sit in it and let God do his work in our lives by his grace. Have you ever known someone who um, over-engineers everything? You know, it's, it's like, it doesn't matter what they're building, what they're doing, they're going to do it so that it, you know, survives the apocalypse. Um, I'm not that guy. I was the guy that we just made jumps for our bikes that you hope they didn't break as you were going over it, right? That was, that was how I was, and I'm still kind of wired that way. It'll like, hey, it'll work, you know, and somebody else goes, no, it won't. Um, there was this guy at my last church. He was a, an engineer who um, built bridges for a living, and so the joke was his back patio could, like, you could park a tank on top because he built an archway that literally was, there was so much concrete and rebar in his patio um, that you could have just parked a, a tank on top of this thing, and it would not have gone anywhere. Um, well, Psalm 119 is over-engineered on purpose. God's plan is that you and I would come away from Psalm 119 absolutely convinced of two things, the authority of this book. That it would just, it would be like, okay, I get it now. I mean, you've told me 176 times. I get it. And I, and, and I understand this book is what I need for all of life and godliness. So he, that's the first thing he wants us to get a hold of. Like, don't forget it. And then secondly, not just the sufficiency of God's word, but the benefits of God's word. They're all over this, this chapter. It's just like all the Bibles just kind of condensed, if you will, into this chapter of saying God's word and the God of the word has incredible benefits in your life. Don't forsake it. Run to him over and over and over. And so Psalm 119, as we've already noticed, he goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He's going all over the place and wherever you are in your life, he's going to hit you at some point because he's going get to get to you and you're going to feel like, hey, that's where I'm at. Like that was me this week. God like 3,000 years ago knew exactly where I was going to be. And, and whoever wrote this Psalm is describing me. And that's where God wants to meet us, right? So he is going to, he is going to go over and over himself, bending over backwards to say there are benefits in this book. Why? Because this, reveal, this book reveals God. And you, you and I need to know God. And so we need to go back to this book over and over. And right now, we actually find ourselves in four sections, if you will, um, of this poem. And the four sections have similar themes. It's like he's, he's, you know, he is making sure we get it. The themes are going to be tied around this idea of affliction and the goodness of God. 
And he is kind of climaxing over the next couple uh, sections to help us get to the point where we're like, I get it. Even in my suffering, God is good. Like that's where he's going. And so if you were here last Sunday, we looked at the, uh, the goodness of affliction in the goodness of God. And this Sunday, you might be like, that, you're trying to talk about the goodness of sovereignty, suffering, and steadfast love. It's going to be similar because he's making the case for the same thing, similarly to a diamond being rotated. The light's reflecting through it over and over. And he's going to say the same thing in a different way to get it through our thick heads, right? So that we come away with, I get it. I get it. One commentator said what he's doing here is showing us misery and maturity. He is going to show us that he is down in the dumps and yet God is still good. And, and we need to come away from Psalm 119 with these same kind of deep responses. God, you are good. And my life is hard. Now, it's not always hard, right? There are highs and lows. But the lows are true and they're real. And sometimes they're ever present. And so he is over-engineering Psalm 119 for many reasons. And we find ourselves in the midst of sorrow and rejoicing. So let's read this section with you. Again, Psalm 119, 73 to 80. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. My, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Would you pray with me, Father? We want to ask you to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Even as this section starts off, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. We want to know your commandments because in your commandments we find you and we need you. So Father, do your work this morning through your word and in Christ's name, amen. So before we dive into this, this text, I need to just give you a few in pieces of information. First off, Hebrew poetry is very interesting, okay? Different than like a narrative where you just tell a story, we all get stories. And stories, typically, you start from the beginning and you move through it to the end. Poetry, even in modern day, doesn't do that. So if you're like me, um, going through college, I hated English classes. Primarily because I hated poetry. Uh, because, you know, you analyze poems, you ever, you ever do that? And they ask those silly questions like, what does this mean? And I'm like, I don't know, it means what he says. And you've got to find the secret meaning of the word, you know, or the structure. And I'm like, A, B, A, B, B, C, I don't, I don't know, right? I don't get it. But thankfully, through God's kindness and grace, I, I get Hebrew poetry a little bit better. And um, so here in, in this section, he's not walking us straight through. He's actually going to do something that is a little bit artsy, if you will, a little unique. And so he's going to, if you look at your Bible, you'll see verse 73 and 80 are very similar. Verse 74 and 79 are similar. 
Verse 75 and 78 are similar and 75 and 76 go right together. So he's working from the outside and going in. So that's what I'm gonna do with our outline this morning. So if you're like, why are you jumping all over? Because that's what Hebrew poetry is doing here, okay? He's starting on the ends of these eight verse sections. He's gonna work us into the middle. And, and also, as, you, as you, you've been learning, each piece or part of Psalm 119 starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, this particular letter gives um, is a, it, it, a lot of verb forms that are requests, if that makes sense, start with this letter. Actually, Jesus mentions this letter. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. He's referring to the Hebrew letter Yod. And that's the, that's the letter that every one of these lines begins with. The Yod, it's a tiny little comma at the top of a letter, okay? So he, it, it's actually interesting that Jesus mentions this letter um, in the Hebrew alphabet. But you'll notice again in your Bible that a, there's like seven prayer requests, if you will. Seven requests to God we're going to see here. And it's because this little letter starts off a lot of those kind of questioning statements to God. Let this happen to me. Please do this. So that's, again, some of those structural things you're going to see over and over. Um, one man said that this structure leads to an avalanche of prayer requests to his God. That's what you're going to see in, in this section this morning, over and over, crying out to God. So, let's dive in and see what God has for us in Psalm 119, 73 through 80. We're going to see primarily the goodness of sovereignty, suffering, and steadfast love. Sovereignty, suffering, and steadfast love. Have you ever taken one of those tests that says, you know, pick the four right answers and there's one wrong one? Those are always the worst, right? You're trying to figure out, you can't just guess. You gotta figure out which ones are right. Well, we might look at sovereignty, suffering, and steadfast love and say one doesn't belong. Like God, you're sovereign and you love me. Or you're sovereign and you bring suffering, but that means you don't love me. But we have a hard time in our minds computing the sovereign hand of God, the goodness of God, and the affliction he brings into our life. And in this Psalm, he throws them all together. And we need to walk through them one by one. So the first thing we see in 73 and 80 is the goodness of obeying the creator. The goodness of obeying the creator. Look at verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Just right there, simple statement. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Here we see the sovereign care of God in creation. Throughout the scriptures, you see what theologians call creator-owner language. God created you and therefore he's over you. It just makes sense. He created you and he's over you. And this is creator owner language. Your hands, your hands, God, they've made me and they've fashioned me. Psalm 100 verse three, similar statement. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. And the sheep of his pasture. It's interesting, it's interesting that the Bible always assumes God's the creator. It doesn't even defend it. It just assumes it. You're the maker. And that's the theological linchpin, if you will, that guides so much of scripture. If you lose sight of God being the creator, why in the world would you submit to him? He's not the ultimate cause. Something else is the ultimate cause. If you deny the fact that God made you, then why submit to him? Because something else is greater than him and you should follow that. So scripture goes consistently to God, you made me. And because you made me, you know what's best for me because you're the owner, right? You're the creator owner of all things. 
And so here the psalmist just almost off the cuff says, your hands have made me and they fashioned me. When this truth is denied, living for God becomes very complicated. How can you trust him? How do you know if this book is true if you, don't, if, you, if you go through Genesis 1 and 2 and deny it in some way? If you undermine God as creator, what are you going to do with the rest of this book? And so he just affirms God as creator. I love the intentionality of God, your hands. And if we want to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, he shaped mankind. Interesting. The rest of creation, he just spoke it out. But with humanity, he fashioned and he made it's interesting here, Hebrew, again, is, is an interesting language. It's noun-rich, verb-light, and here we have you made and you make, and we don't know what to do with this, so translations say in verse 73, you made and fashioned me. Literally, it just means you made me what I am. That's it. You made me. Everything about me, you did it. It's all God's work, and that's where I'm getting the idea of sovereignty this morning, so don't get into some, don't jump to wherever you think sovereignty means this morning, whatever theological grid you hold to. I think here in the text, sovereignty simply means this. God is over everything and in control of everything. That's it. He's simply saying, God, you're in control because you're over it all. And so I must submit to you. So when you hear sovereignty this morning, don't read in some system that you hold to. Just, believe, just see you're over it and everything is underneath your power and you're under your control because you are God. So the sovereign care of God and creation is so clear here. Your hands have made me and fashioned me, and we must embrace that. Even in, a, even in a world that says, you are a dinosaur, if you actually believe that there was a God who created everything. You are just immediately unintellectual. One of the most brilliant men I ever knew said, as long as I hold to a God who created the world according to what the Bible says, I will be considered a fool. And I'm okay with that. So when God says this, we say, okay, Lord, you've made everything. And therefore we are underneath you because you are the creator and you are the owner of all things. But look at where he goes next. I love this. You're, you created all that we know, all that we see, me included. And then he says, give me understanding. Here we see the continual care of God. I've talked in Psalm 119 about how God is not a cosmic clockmaker. He didn't set it in motion and step back and say, okay, let me see how this goes. It says here, he made it. And then immediately God, this one who made me, give me understanding. This creator owner is our teacher, our instructor. He's not a distant God. He is a near God. First John 5, listen to these, these words in First John 5, 20. And we know that the son has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true if his son, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So here we just see a New Testament connection. God, teach me. Jesus is the one who's given us understanding. Luke 24, 45, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, or it says of Jesus, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. As they knew Jesus, they understood the scriptures. So for us today, how do we know God? How does this prayer request get answered? By faith, repent and believe in Jesus and you will understand. God will teach you through the person and work of his son. So the God who made you, who is over all things, is the God who instructs you. And that is good news because we don't have to run in terror of this God. 
we can draw near to him. So that's, that's verse 73. He made you and he also teaches you. But now look at the, where it ultimately goes in verse 80. Remember I said he bounces around? In verse 73, he calls out for teaching. In verse 80, he says, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not, that I may not be put to shame. Here we see that he, that he has the, the kind of the consummation. This longing to live for God is exclaimed or proclaimed from the psalmist. He starts with give me understanding. And then he says, that I may be blameless. It leads to this longing for blamelessness. There's only one other time the word blameless is used in Psalm 119. Anybody for $100? Here we go. Verse one, blessed is the man whose way is blameless. That's how he starts off the whole thing. Blessed, happy is the man. When your way is blameless, when you understand God and walk with him, you will know happiness, blessedness, according to God's standard. This idea of blameless is whole or complete, lacking nothing, integrity in all of life. What an interesting statement that my heart may be blameless. And we have to pause and ask the question, is that true of you and of me? that your, your heart is blameless. Are there closets in your life that nobody can go into? Is there something where you're like, uh-uh, you know, like people start asking questions and you dodge that like the plague. Don't you open, nope, you can't open that door. Are there areas of your life you've just pulled the rug up and swept it underneath and there's a giant pile in the middle of the rug but nobody can talk about it because you refuse to walk in blamelessness. I know that's a hard truth because we like to compartmentalize our lives. Oh yeah, I mean, 85% of me is walking with God. There's just this little bit over here that I'm like, you know what, don't touch it. The Puritans call it your pet sins, the ones that you actually like enough to let them stay around. They crawl up in your lap and you just kind of like them. And so you don't really want to deal with them. Brothers and sisters, if we get serious with God, we cannot harbor sin. And we cannot be okay with anything but longing for blamelessness. Now, I'm not gonna stand here this morning and say, I'm blameless, brothers and sisters. There isn't any sin in my life. That's foolishness. And that's not what this word means. He's not talking about Christian perfectionism. He's talking about integrity that every aspect of life is the Lord's. And when God begins to put his finger of conviction on your heart, it's like, boom, I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna seek help. I'm gonna run from my sin. And some of us here this morning, we like the word struggle. That's the Christian word for I like my sin and I'm failing. I'm struggling. More than likely, you're just indulging and you don't wanna talk about it. And you need to get real with yourself, get real with God, get real with the brothers and sisters and say, I need help. Because if I'm gonna walk blamelessly, I need, I need you. I need the word of God, I need the body of Christ. Because there are no closet doors left closed when you come to Jesus. There's no more like, well, I've got my life and I've got God. It is all or nothing. That's the call of the gospel. And we see it here in the Old Testament that when you actually seek after God, your heart longs for blamelessness. 
It's, it's so interesting because he, he says, my heart, my heart wants to be blameless. This isn't legalism. This isn't like, okay, if you become a member at Elgrove Bible Church, here's the list of what you can and cannot do. And as long as you do this, you are godly. No, not at all. We don't have some external list that we make you follow. That's legalism, right? That's performance-based Christianity. This is your heart. Because God has changed you, you long for blamelessness. Because you want to be like your Savior. And you're not okay with anything less. And I just want to put out there this morning that some of you are really convicted right now, but you're really miserable. Because I think the most miserable people in the world are those who know the truth and try to live in their sin. And you're just a wreck because you've got this whole area of your life that you've been lying to yourself saying it's not a big deal. And you don't know why you have no joy in Jesus and why you're struggling and why everybody else seems to have this thing with God working out and you can't. Well, maybe it's because you've got a whole part of your life that you're living in idolatry. Oh, would you let it go this morning? Would you just say, God, I'm done running. In that one area, I'm done running. I'm done trying to have the pleasures of this world and follow you. I'm gonna seek you with exclusivity that my heart may be blameless. And when you do that, Psalm 51 will explode in your soul. You will know joy in God. You will be able to say, whoa, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, you're good. Man, the word of God hits us, doesn't it? I mean, we don't have, I'm not making this up, folks. It's a sword that pierces, doesn't it? It goes right into our souls, and then God digs it around a little bit, and he says, are you going to follow me? Are you going to still try to go your own way and seek me? So he has this longing for God that he just proclaims, oh, that my heart would be blameless. It's interesting because there's another theme in this psalm. It's the theme of shame. And he says that when I seek you, I won't be put to shame. See the end of verse 80? That I may not be put to shame. You see in verse 78, we're going to see in a minute that when sin is exposed, you're shamed. Anybody been there before? I have a lot of times. I sin, I hide it, God expose it, I'm embarrassed. That's shame. Sin in God's economy always produces shame. Even in our society today, we try so hard to say that anything goes and you can do whatever you want in life, but there's shame involved in sin. I mean, just look at the news. When somebody's exposed in their sin, their career's over because it produced shame and there had to be something done to it. So they hid it for a long time. Exposure, shame, ah, run, ignore it, right? Try to, try to get rid of it because of shame. Sin always produces shame. But when you walk in the way of blamelessness, there is no shame. Blessed is the man whose way is blameless. So some of us this morning are living with this shame. I call it low-grade guilt. It's just kind of always there, always nagging at your soul. You don't know what to do about it. Well, it's because sin produces shame. That's how God designed it. And God wants that shame to push you to Jesus. But see, in our shame, we go towards the road of, well, I'm going to fix it on my own. And how's that working for you? It just gets worse and worse. So he says, in your shame, go to the God who heals. I mean, the gospel screams here, doesn't it? Romans 10, 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's, that's the heart of the gospel. And you know what, folks? None of us in here live blameless lives to the, to the degree we should. 
Therefore, all of us have an experience with guilt and shame, which is the very reason Jesus had to die. So here the psalmist is proclaiming, when I walk with you, I don't know shame. But this, potentially the same author wrote Psalm 51, who knew a whole lot of shame. And he needed the gospel. Just like as we say here this morning, oh, that I would be blameless. In the same breath, we should say, oh, praise God for the savior who died because I'm not. And therefore I don't have to live with the shame and the, the, the misery that my sin brings. So even here we see a savior who died for that sh- shame, like 1 John two twenty eight. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Like that's what Jesus does. He frees you from shame. This is not a room full of perfect people. This is a room full of people that say, Jesus took my guilt and shame. And therefore I can walk with God with joy. And when anybody ever says, oh, you're a good person, say, no, not really. Jesus died for me. And he, he changed me, but he took all my guilt and shame. And he continues to do that even to this day. So we strive to walk blamelessly. And when we do, praise God, we do not know shame, but we also praise him for the gospel that removes our guilt and shame. So the goodness of sovereignty, suffering and steadfast love. Point two, here we're gonna look at the goodness of sovereignty in suffering. Verse 75 and 78. 75 and 78. We're going to come back to 74. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Here we see the need to embrace the justice of God. The justice of God. Now, justice is a loaded word today. When we hear justice, you can think of a whole bunch of issues in our culture surrounding the idea of justice. I just want to say this morning that we've got to let God's word define justice when it's used in the scriptures, okay? So don't jump off to a cultural view of justice. Let's go to God's justice. What we see in the scriptures is that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament, that's what they called him. His rules are just, meaning they're categorically good and fair. They're categorically good and fair. There, there is no lack in them. God does not play favorites. He doesn't have one set of rules for somebody and another for another. These are equally just for all humanity. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his way is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Genesis 18.25, just to give you another reference. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Here the psalmist says in verse 75, I know, O Yahweh, O Lord, your rules are righteous. Or that the word there is just. And this is crucial because what he's about to say is going to say, when God, when you afflict me, you're just in that. That's where he's going with this. He's setting himself up to actually say, I'm suffering under the hand of your justice. But it's really important that he starts it off with, I know without a shadow of a doubt, your rules are just. And we have got to believe that this morning because if you don't, you will blame God. If you don't believe God is just, fair, good in all that he does, when you get dealt a bad deck of cards... God, what are you doing? It's your fault. You're not good. You're not fair. You're not just. 
Side note, be grateful God's not fair. Because if God is fair, you and I are all condemned to hell. So when anybody ever talks about God not being fair, I'm like, amen. And you better praise God he's not fair. Okay? So we've got to embrace the fact with the psalmist, Lord, I know that your rules, they're just, they're good, they're faithful. You don't play favorites. You don't have the teacher's pet. They're good and righteous for all people. Now look at what he says. You're just, God, and in that, you've, in, in that faithfulness, you have afflicted me, or you have afflicted me faithfully, or as one translation says, well, and you have afflicted me fairly, because the idea here is the justice of God. So God, you've been fair in how you treat me, and how has that treatment been? Affliction, I'm suffering. And he says, you, excuse me, you have done it. Now, before we comment too much on this verse, listen to Psalm 89, 30. This is really interesting. If his children, this is a reference to God, if God's children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, that's the just rules of God. We just talked about those. What does he say next? Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And this is beautiful right here but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. That is amazing. Because here we see in a different Psalm, actually not penned by David. It was by a different author during that time. He says, God, when your children go astray, you will punish their transgressions, but you won't remove your love from them. Remember last week, the goodness of God, like a loving father disciplines his children. That's God in us. Good God, we are going astray. And in love, he corrects us. The psalmist totally gets it. And he says, in your faithfulness, God, you have afflicted me. The context, if you, if you just kind of read between the lines a little bit, he's broken God's just law, right? That's what he's saying. Your law is just and I've broken it. And so you're afflicting me because I have violated your law. So there's an implicit admission of sin, but there's also an absolute proclamation of sovereign goodness. In faithful love, God afflicts his children. In the original language, the you in the verse 75, you have afflicted me is an emphatic position. He's saying, this isn't like a, maybe God did this. It's a, you, God, you, according to your word, are bringing affliction into my life, and you're fair, and you're good, and you're just. He is not giving God an out. He is not saying, God, you're good to me when I win the lottery and you're bad to me when I don't. He's not like, God, when life's going my way, oh yeah, God, God, bless me. It's all God. You know how people do that, right? When blessings come, it's always God's good. And then when bad things happen, they're like, no, I just don't know, right? They don't, they don't turn to God. They're not like Job where he says, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here, the psalmist, same theology as Job 1 and 2. God, you are afflicting me. And this is where we see the mature child of God embracing God in affliction rather than accusing God. He says, God, I have gone astray and you are good. You're faithful in how you afflict me. Is that your response this morning or whatever God's putting you through? Is your response one of God I know that you're faithful and just and you are doing to me exactly what I need oh, and exactly what I deserve. Not in a woe is me complex, 
Not end up beating yourself up, but God, I know that I need you. And I know that I don't live for you like I should. And you're afflicting me because in that affliction of pain, you're shaping me. And you're, it's, it's corrective affliction, as I call it, right? He is he's squeezing you because he loves you and he's shaping you. So we see, we see this faithfulness of God that brings affliction. But look at the instruments of his affliction in verse 78. 75 and 78 are connected. Here's the instruments that he uses. And I just want to mention this quickly because here we see, let the proud, the insolent, the wicked men from verse 53 is how they're described. Let these insolent be put to shame. They have wronged me with falsehoods. Interesting, once again, we see in scripture, God using evil people to do his work. I mean, don't you see that? Have you ever like read read the Old Testament especially and you're like, what? You use these horrible people? Like, like the Assyrians to do what? You use the Babylonians to wipe out who? I mean, but honestly, isn't this what the cross tells us? He uses the Romans to kill the son of God. I mean, that's just what God does. He uses evil to accomplish a glorious purpose. And you and I could sit and argue about why he does that. But at the end of the day, it goes back to you're just in all you do. You're good. And you know what we see throughout the scriptures is when God uses evil people to judge the righteous, at some point, he's gonna judge the wicked too right? He, 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 it goes both ways. But here he says, God, there are wicked people and they are smearing me with lies. They're wronging me with falsehood. So fascinating because here we see the man of God being afflicted. And the only thing the enemies of God can do is lie about him. Kind of like Daniel, right? Let's go after Daniel. Let's, let's, let's get something, some dirt on Daniel. What do they have to do? Let's convince the king that when he prays to his God, he's not loyal to the king. They've got to go after his walk with God. They've got to smear lies, right? They've got to just, because he's righteous. So brothers and sisters, if you suffer under the hand of wicked people at any level, make sure it's because you walk with God. Make sure it's not because you deserve it. There's a lot of Christians who are flat out jerks. And then they talk about, oh yeah, I was suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because you were a jerk and you weren't kind, and you weren't gracious, and you were unloving, and you gave the name of Jesus a bad name, and you lost your job because of it, right? But if you suffer, suffer in this way. Suffer like this. There's evil people, Father, in the world, and they are smearing my name with lies. I'm walking blamelessly with you, and I'm suffering, but you're still good, and you're still faithful to me. It's interesting here, that word shame came back up. Let the insolent be put to shame. This is actually a prayer request. He's saying to God, would you shame them? But I think it's also just a matter of fact because when you live in sin, guess what? You will be shamed. Your sins will find you out and the day will come where you will be shamed because of your sin. And we've all been there. I mean, how many of us could give testimony to living a lie? For a day, a month, maybe decades, you lived a lie. And when that lie exploded, right? The shame came in. You were miserable. You might've contemplated suicide. You were depressed for a season, right? Shame just overwhelmed you. That's what sin does. Remember, shame should push us to Jesus, not from Jesus. But here he says, the wicked, they will be shamed because there's always shame connected to sin. Don't ever forget that. That's actually a motivation for righteousness. Well, I don't want to go down that road. It hurts. I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I don't want to do it again. 
Like I, I've, I have marks on my body or in my life from that. Shame should push us to God. Sin always produces shame. And so here in this section, it's so fascinating. God brings affliction and he does it through some people that are running from God. But look at what the psalmist says. This is brilliant and mature and we should long for this. End of 78. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. In the midst of being smeared with falsehood, of people attacking him and under the affliction of God, where's he go? I'm going to meditate on you. I'm going to think deeply and often about this book. It's where I'm going to go even in my sorrow. You know, it's easy to think truth when life's going according to your plan. Right? You've defined truth. You've got it all figured out. And then God wrecks it. And now you're just spiraling, right? Farther and farther down. Because you see, suffering reveals what you actually trust in. So at this moment, the psalmist could have gone to political power. He could have gone to materialism. He could have gone to women. He could have gone to a whole bunch of things. But he says, I'm going to go to the one constant, the one thing that doesn't change. My hope is in you. I meditate on you because my world is falling apart and you are stable. You are my rock. It's interesting. Just think with me for a moment. What are some of the things that we as a culture run to? You know that food is one of the biggest sources of comfort for American society? We go to food. I mean, it tastes good, makes me feel happy. So I go to it. I mean, it doesn't matter. I get a bad, bad information. I'm just in a bad mood. Whatever's happening makes me happy. Boom. Right back to it. You know, so you're hitting up in and out or Twinkies or wherever you go, right? Because of what makes it's make you have instant comfort. We go to relationships, man. We go to relationships, and I would say in today's world, we go to pseudo relationships. We go to relationships on electronic devices. People that will tell us how wonderful we are and just tell us how, how we are good and noble and attractive, right? We go to these other things we trust in. We go to entertainment because entertainment drowns out the problem. And that we, we don't have to hear it anymore. We go to some, you just fill it in. What is yours? When, you, when life gets hard, where do you turn? You've got something you run to. And you know what? If you can't figure it out, ask the people closest to you. They'll tell you. Because they know where you go. It could be technology. It could be a game. It could be the news. It could be a whole litany of things. But where do you go? So he says here that suffering, it shows what you trust in. And the psalmist says, I meditate on your precepts. I think deeply and I think often about my God because that's what I need. Hope and life are found in this book and they're found in nothing else. And so when life is crashing in, when those waves are crashing you against the rocks, he says, I'm gonna go to the one place that's my constant and that is my God. So he has an unwavering commitment to truth. Do you see here the sovereignty of God and suffering and it's good. And because he's over that suffering, you can run to him in that suffering and know he will still be good. He has not left you alone. You're not on an island by yourself. He is good and faithful to you, even in your sorrow. But now 76 and 77, this is kind of the middle, if you will, of the sandwich this morning. This is the best part in my estimation, 
Because in the middle of being afflicted by God, here's what he does. Let your steadfast love comfort me. According to your promise to your servant, let your mercy come to me that I may live. For, for your law is my delight. Here we see what I call the goodness of gospel hope. Gospel hope. Now, you might hear the word gospel, and if you've been around church very long, you might say, well, hey, Pastor Justin, that's a New Testament word. It's not. It's just a Greek word that meant good news. That's all it means. So it's a good news word, okay? And we see good news all over this book, don't we? So we should be able to see gospel everywhere, all right? We see the good news of God just bleeding through the pages of scripture. And here we see gospel hope being shouted from the mountaintops. In the midst of his sorrow, he has abundant hope. Verse 76, we see a plea for steadfast love and comfort. Some, some translations say this, please give to me your steadfast love. He is begging God, your steadfast love, because it comforts me. Here is a plea for love and comfort. Now just remember the context. He's being afflicted by God. He's already admitted that. You are afflicting me in your goodness because I deserve it. Okay, that's what, he's already told us that. So remember that. In the middle of that affliction under the hand of God, he says, God, please give me your steadfast love. Please comfort me in the midst of my corrective affliction. Comfort me. Psalm 86.5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Isn't, isn't this what we need? Because we think like this, God, I blew it. I know it. I blew it. And God, I'm suffering the consequences for my foolish mistakes. I know it's my fault. And I know that you're doing this to me because I deserve it. Typically how we respond next is, I got to fix it. God, I'll fix it. And once I fix the problem I created, I'll return to you. It's not what happens here. He goes, God, I've, I've, I'm, I've run from you. I've strayed from your just, your just commands. You've afflicted me and you're faithful in doing so. And then he runs to God. And he says, God, please give me your steadfast covenantal love and mercy. I need them because I need comfort and you're the only place I can get it. And, God, and you don't find God holding his arms out saying, good luck. Yeah, you're going to wait a while. That's not how God responds at all to his children. So he is abounding in steadfast love for all who call upon him. Again, the heart of the gospel. Come to me, all who are weary and broken and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Not clean yourself up, go to church, be a better person, and then come to me. It's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is broken sinners wallowing in their misery because of their sin, come to me. And I welcome you as children of God. I offer forgiveness and restoration and comfort and hope and goodness and all the things you don't have in your sin. And so the psalmist, we see the hope of the gospel. Lord, let your steadfast love. That word, if you remember, is the covenant faithfulness of God. He is faithful to his people, even in their sin. And it's interesting that he says comfort. Isn't that what we long for? Yes, it is. I mean, we just, at the end of the day, 
We long for comfort. Maybe you find comfort in your bills being paid. If I just have all the bills paid and even, I mean, maybe I even have money in savings, I'm comforted because that's what comfort looks like. Or maybe it's just if I didn't have an argument with my spouse for a day, I'd have comfort. Or maybe if my kids just listened to me, I'd be comforted. I mean, we, we want comfort. We want calm. We want everything to be good. And here he says, in your steadfast love, comfort me. That is where, that is where comfort can be found without end. God, comfort me. And in that plea for the steadfast love, he says in verse 77, let your mercy come to me. He couples the faithful love of God with the mercy of God and he, he cries out for both because he desperately needs them. It's interesting here that mercy by definition is undeserved. It's totally undeserved. You and I don't deserve the mercy of God. It's impossible because if we deserve mercy, it's no longer mercy. So by definition, mercy is undeserved. Listen to Daniel 9. This is a great verse. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Is that not your heart this morning? I hope it is. Lord, I come to you this morning and it's not because I've been a good boy this week. I've not been faithful to you like I should. I desperately need you. Oh, it's not my righteousness, but because of your great mercy. It's what I long for. And the psalmist totally gets it. That life itself is dependent on the favor and compassion of God, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. That's what he says, verse 70, 77. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. Live. I want life. I want life in abundance. And I need your mercy. You see, I think if we don't come to God for such mercy and find our life in him, guess what? You will search for that life in everything else. You will try to find your identity in your career. And you will worship that because in that you live. Or you'll try to find your identity in the perfect family. Whatever that means for you, you want to have it. And you're going you're to go after that idol and try to find your identity in it until you get it. Because it's what, it's what you live for. And you could go with just a myriad of other accomplishments, right? That I might live. And here the scripture confronts us and says, no, no, find your identity in this, the mercy of God. A God who has forgiven you, a God who has taken your guilt and shame, placed it on the Son of God that you might go free. And in that, you know life. So we then could just go all over the scriptures and see that we have our identity in the Savior, right? We are blood-bought children of God. We are priests and right? We are kings before this God. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We can live because we've been given mercy. Isn't that beautiful how in his suffering, even because of his sin, he goes to God and he cries out to that God. And he doesn't find that God like some of our earthly fathers. I gotta let the grudge wear off. Right? Isn't that how we treat each other? Yeah, you know what? Just stay away for a while. You sinned against me? Just give it a few days. Okay? 
I mean, isn't that how we handle human problems so often? Right? We are, we're moody. We're judgmental. We're like, oh, you know what? I got to think about it for a while before I talk to you again. I'm not going to let you close to me, and I'm definitely not going to bless you in any way. And here we see the exact opposite. God, I've run from you, and I know you're good in your judgment of me, but I'm running straight to you. And you have arms open wide and the goodness of God ready for you, the mercy of God right there, and the faithful love of God to comfort you in your affliction. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know if it's trials because of your sin or trials because you live in a fallen world. But whatever it is, I know because of the word of God, you can run to him and say, God, I need your steadfast love. I mean, he says here, according to your promise to your servant, you've already promised it in this book. Would you do it? Give me mercy, Lord, because I need you. Those are the promises of God that we must run to in our sorrow. Well, where the psalmist goes next is really interesting. And it's actually the first time he's done this in Psalm 119, which for some of you are going to be like, oh, he finally says something new. I know that because some of you had told me so much. Number four, the necessity of the covenant people of God. He's talked about sovereignty, suffering, steadfast love, and now he's going to come down and say, in my affliction, in my sorrow, there's one thing that I need. Look at what he says in verse 74. Those who fear you may see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. Verse 79. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Interestingly enough, here I believe what the psalmist is telling us is that in our affliction, we should not be pushed away from the church, from the covenant community. We should run to it. That's the context is still one of affliction. Life is not all happy-go-lucky for the psalmist. Life is full of sorrow and agony. And for the first time in this whole text, he brings up other people who fear you. That's what we call the covenant community. After the day of Pentecost, we call that the church, right? We call it the church. It's us. But he says, let those who fear you, others like me, on this road of faith, walking with God, let those who fear you, And you know, sadly, a lot of us, when affliction sets in, when the pressures of life happen, we withdraw from the people of God. We're like, God, life is busy. Trials are real. And we're like distancing ourselves more and more from the very thing our souls are aching for, the people of God. I mean, imagine with me that you you get diagnosed with diabetes. And some of you in here are diabetic. I'm sure of it, just with this many people in a room. Now, before you were diagnosed, you probably knew some of the things you should and shouldn't eat. It's just maybe some healthy choices that were good, but you know, they were, they were negotiable. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah, I know I shouldn't eat that or I should eat that. And then you get diagnosed. Now those negotiables should become what? Non-negotiables. I, I, like, I have to eat this or I could die. Or something, I mean, I could be debilitated or whatever, right? So you begin making serious changes, right? Because of your diagnosis. You see, we all need the church. We need the body. We need the covenant people of God. But when the affliction of life sets in, guess what? You need even more. It, It becomes like, I desperately need 
other people in my life. Why? Because they're going to minister some of these very graces to you that you're dying, you're crying out for. You know, I might ask God for steadfast love. You know how he answers it? Pastor Phil. He, I'm seriously, he might use Pastor Phil as the, as, as the divine agent of steadfast love in my life. But I withdrew from the body, man. I'm like, life's hard. I'm leaving you alone. I'll come back when life's easier. When I'm not so busy, I'll come back. And I'm not trying to step on any toes this morning, but I know I am. Because the psalmist is going right there. Affliction, heartache, sorrow, difficulty in life. Oh, I need those who fear you. I need those who are like-minded with me in their walk with God. Let me just make a few comments about these two verses. There's joy in the body of Christ. There's joy. Look what he says in 74. For those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. He's saying, not a proud statement. This isn't a, oh yeah, they're going to look at me and marvel. No, he's going to say, they're going to see me and rejoice. Why? Because I've hoped in your word. It's all you. So they're going to look at my life in the midst of my sorrow, and they're going to say, wow. Wow, God's preserving you through that? God's awesome. Look at what God can do. I mean, you should, you should be bitter. You know that? I mean, anybody ever have conversations like that with an unbeliever maybe? Where they're like, so you're not angry at that person? No, I'm not. You're not bitter at that person? No, I'm not. How do you do that? Well, because I've been forgiven much so I can forgive, right? Like that's what grace does in us. And the psalmist is saying, others are gonna see me and they're gonna rejoice. Why? Because I've placed my hope in the rock of the word of God. And it's all about him. I mean, Psalm 66, 16, listen to these words. Come and hear, all you who fear God, I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I mean, isn't that what fellowship should be? It shouldn't be foolishness. It should be, come in here, let me tell you what God's doing for me. And then we reciprocate that together and we come away full of joy. Like, man, God is doing stuff all over and he's caring for people in profound ways. So it produces joy. And I, I hope that's true for you because evidences of grace should produce joy, not envy, not jealousy. Remember, that's not what love does. Love doesn't envy, it's not boastful, it's not jealous. So you might be talking to somebody in this body and they're praising, praising God for what he's doing in their life and, and don't come away with, why isn't God doing that to me? But come away with, God, you're good and you're faithful in their life and you know what that does for me? You'll be faithful to me too. You, it produces joy in us. But then 79, here we see that let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. It produces joy, but when we are a part of the covenant community, it also produces faithfulness in our lives. It helps us stay on track. This is just kind of common sense. You know, I like to, I like to ride my bike, okay? I've told you that before. But you know what? I, I push a lot harder when I have other people to ride with. So if you've ever ridden on the American River Bike Trail, Okay, it's up there by the river. Um, it goes from Folsom to downtown. Um, I, I, I used to ride up there a lot because I lived right near it. And you know what I would do? If I'm on the trail and I see somebody in front of me, you know what I got to do? I got to pass them. And then I got to stay ahead of them. And then I got to pass the next guy, right? Because that's what it does, right? The other people, even though they don't know me, and I don't know them, I'm like, I got that one. And sometimes, you know, I'm like, ah, that wasn't a big deal. Other times, I'm like, man, if I can pass that guy, I'm legit, 
right? Because that guy is, knows his stuff. Right? I mean, there, there's that sense that when other people are in our lives, whether it's an exercise or a, a job or whatever, it pushes us to be better. Well, that's just how God made us. So in the context of the covenant people of God, he's saying, when I'm, a, when I'm with these people, I'm pushed to love God. I'm pushed to know God. Again, some of us have so withdrawn from the body of Christ that we don't even have a clue what that looks like. You know, we, we get our information from pop psychology. We try, to have, we try to have our Christian fix by listening to podcasts, but we're not in the body. And here he's saying, when you are in the body, you're gonna learn and you're gonna grow. So here he says, turn to me. I just wanna real quickly wanna talk about discipleship because that's what we're talking about. Discipleship is a big word that some people are afraid of, but I would say it's really simple. It simply means helping someone follow Jesus. That's it. It's not a Bible study that you got to like take your whole Bible and be a theologian extraordinaire to dive into it. It's not a book you've mastered. You got to take somebody else through. It's simple. I'm going to help you follow Jesus and you're going to help me follow Jesus. We just go a real simple definition this morning because we see it right here. Turn to me, bring somebody along and help them follow Jesus. It's a pattern that's observable through all of scripture. We just, some call it life together. You can't be distant from one another and help one another grow in Christ. It's impossible. That's why Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Not because you have to be in church every time the doors are open, but because you want to actually help each other grow in Christ. So you're doing everything in your life, not just on Sundays, but throughout your week. How can I help others walk with Jesus? Because that's what I'm called to do. So in the scriptures, we see, we, we see this with Jesus. How did he disciple his disciples? Just live with me for three years. That's it, just three years with me. And you're gonna know how I think, how I talk, how I act. That's what it meant. I'm gonna, I'm gonna model it for you. And see, we think that, well, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a part of the body. I go to church on Sundays. It's not what it's about. It's not just that you wave at somebody and shake their hand and say, I'm doing good, thank you. It's actually life in the body of Christ. Loving each other, intentionally encouraging one another to walk with God to love God, to live for him. And so here the psalmist says that they would turn to me and well, how does he finish the verse? That they may know your testimonies. Does anybody know the testimonies of God better because of you? Because that's what it looks like here, right? I mean, he's saying, turn to me. Like, follow me as I follow Jesus. This is what Paul said. And then he says, why? That you're gonna know God better. So we should all be doing that, right? There should be people in my life that I'm saying, ah, I know God better because of him. I'm more faithful to Jesus because of him. Oh yeah, and there's other people that they're more faithful to Jesus because of me. It's not a one-sided thing. It's, not, it's the body of Christ. We love one another and we help one another walk with God. So 3,000 years ago, the psalmist knew the benefit of the covenant community and he knew it in sorrow. That's what's key. In the midst of his agony, he brings up the covenant people of God because it's where he knows his heart needs to go. And this morning, some of us are having a hard time with that. I told the men on Tuesday night that the Christian faith is absolutely personal, but never private. And in America, we've privatized our faith. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm kind of like one of those Christians that opens my garage door, pulls in, shuts the door, and doesn't talk to anybody about it. That's not Christianity. 
Like Christianity is you're a part of the people of God and you need me, but guess what? I need you. That's the point here. Like we're in this together and I'm gonna push you and you're gonna push me to walk with God. Oh, don't withdraw. Don't be afraid because see the gospel speaks into this. And see, because we've been loved by a great God, we can love others. Because we've been forgiven, we can forgive. Because we're all sinners, we don't have to judge each other. The gospel covers all that ground and we actually can live life in the body, provoking love and good works. Well, brothers and sisters, I started off this morning by asking the question, have you ever known somebody who over-engineered everything? Psalm 119, like I mentioned, over-engineers what it means to be miserable and mature. I'm not trying to campaign on misery this morning, but the word of God is saying there's affliction in life and it's a reality. And in that affliction, I draw near to God. And as I was studying for today and praying for you this week, my longing is that we'd be a church that when we get together, when we scatter in our various parts of the community, we'd be able to say honestly and truthfully, God is enough. He satisfies me. You know what? Life is not going according to my plan. But God is good and God is faithful. And I can go to him moment after moment, day after day, and know he's never going to stiff arm me and say, come back when you've done a better job. I can draw near to him because he is a good and sovereign and gracious God full of loving kindness. Wouldn't that be awesome? Let's pray to that end together. Father, would you help us? Help us this week as we go from here to embrace the realities of your goodness, even in some of the sorrows of life. Help us to run to you because you've promised to meet us in our affliction. Help us to run to one another because we need the body of Christ to stay faithful to Christ. Oh, may we not distance ourselves. May we not live in lies, but may we be people of integrity and blamelessness, confessing sin and forsaking it, having hearts that are right before you. And Lord, in all of this, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that proclaims that even though we are not sufficient in ourselves, we have a God who is and a savior who died in our place. And we praise you and in Christ's name, amen.